nearly 8.45. Mark Zastro, science journalist, is here with our Science and Tech Roundup today. Good morning to you. Good morning, Alex. And uh, in a moment, the US FDA approving a second T-cell immunotherapy cancer treatment. Let's hope that's good news. Scientists also finding a cave on the moon. Big enough to be a base for astronauts. Uh, But first, we're nine months into the US presidency of Donald Trump and starting to get a better look at what his environmental policies look like. Unfortunately, some of the environmentalists' worst fears are being realised, the latest involving a case of what some are saying is censorship of climate science, Mark. That's right. On Sunday, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, acknowledged that three of its researchers would be canceling appearances at a conference in Providence, Rhode Island. They had been scheduled to give lectures on the impact that climate change is expected to have on Narragansett Bay, which is the large nearby estuary. Uh, it covers about 200 square kilometers. The EPA gave no explanation, but other scientists say that most of the conference was going to be about climate change. And they were very surprised that the EPA was pulling its scientists, especially because the agency actually does have a long history of working with community planners and researchers in this particular region. One told the New York Times, uh, which first reported the story, that this is a blatant example of scientific censorship and that he thinks that they're trying to stifle discussions of the impacts of climate change. The Democratic senator from Rhode Island, Sheldon Whitehouse, also criticized the move and said, muzzling our leading scientists benefits no one. Now, we know that Donald Trump's pick to run the EPA, Scott Pruitt, has denied the consensus that human carbon emissions are contributing to climate change. So this is something that many had feared would happen. It's the latest incident in a pattern. Also last week, Analysis showed that the EPA has scrubbed one of its websites mentioning climate change. That's right. Uh, Of course, back in April, the agency actually took down a large number of pages that deal with climate science. Uh, Now some of these pages are coming back online, but with all references to climate change deleted. So that actually includes the website that similarly is intended to give local officials information about how to deal with climate change. This analysis was released by the Environmental Data and Governments Initiative, which is a group that monitors U.S. government websites about the environment. They say that the site used to link to about 380 pages of material, but since it's come back online, that has been cut to 175. The EPA responded that the cut pages, they're still online if you search for them, but all the references to them and all the links to them have disappeared from the homepage of the site. Also last week, Scott Pruitt floated a proposal that would reshape numerous advisory boards that the EPA runs, another move being criticised by scientists. That's right. These include uh, these advisory boards include scientists who advise the EPA on all the issues that it oversees, like air quality, hazardous waste, drinking water safety, that kind of thing. And at an appearance at a conservative think tank last week, uh, Scott Pruitt said that he wanted to block all scientists who are receiving federal grants from serving on those boards. Now, that's kind of curious because most, you know, a good portion of basic researchers in the U.S. receive federal grants. And the purpose of those grants is to reward the top scientists and support the best and most interesting science. So it's no surprise that a lot of these people also wind up serving on these advisory boards. So this would affect a a large number of those people 
uh, on the boards and, and really allow Pruitt to uh, change the makeup of them considerably. Now, Pruitt claims that he's worried about the independence and the objectivity of the advice that's coming from the scientists to the government, you know, if they're also receiving grants from the government. Mm. Uh, but many scientists, including the EPA's own chair of the board that oversees scientific counselors, says that this is just an attempt by Pruitt to remold the boards to his own liking in support of his agenda of deregulation. Yeah, highly concerning, and it doesn't breed confidence for other areas of policy. Absolutely. Um, but uh, also coming out of the U.S. better tidings, the country's Food and Drug Administration has approved a second form of T-cell immunotherapy, expensive as it may be, but um, it does hold hope for gene therapy uh, to combat cancer. That's right. This is part of a new wave of therapies that have been incredibly promising in clinical trials. Uh, Previously, in August, the FDA had approved the first treatment of this kind, which was a technique developed by Novartis, the Swiss pharma company, to treat leukemia. Now, this is the second uh, such treatment. It comes from Kite Pharma in the U.S., and it's approved to treat non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is another type of blood cancer. So the technique, as you may know, uh, involves extracting some of the patient's white blood cells, called T-cells, and then shipping them to a lab where they are genetically modified to instead attack cancer cells. Then they're re-injected into the body. And this can often come with terrible, even life-threatening side effects. So it's only approved for those who have undergone two rounds of unsuccessful chemotherapy. But in this treatment's clinical trial, 39% of the patients were in complete remission, even after follow-ups an average of nine months later. How much is this going to cost? That's the sticking point. This treatment is going to be $373,000 U.S. dollars. That's actually over $100,000 cheaper than Novartis's version for leukemia. But obviously, access here is a huge issue. Uh, There's no doubt that there is a lot of money involved in these kinds of in these kinds of treatments, uh, Kite Pharma was actually acquired just in August by Gilead Sciences for nearly $12 billion on the strength of this uh, treatment that was at the time pending approval. Kite has the capacity to treat about four or 5,000 patients a year, they say. They've also applied for approval in Europe, and uh, if, if approved, they will probably build another plant there to boost their capacity. It's uh, big numbers, though, isn't it? Um, Let's also talk uh, about plans for going to the moon, even for staying on it for a bit. Um, Perhaps we'll be using a base deep in an underground cave if we have the honour or privilege of getting there. Uh, We've spoken to you before, Mark, about going out and staying on another planet. You've told us on record that you wouldn't mind being, for example, part of a Mars experiment. Would you also fancy the moon? Yeah, why not? I mean, it's if if anything, it's a little bit closer, right? It's a lot easier to get back. To <laughs> well, Earth it might not be as adventurous for you. Well, that's true. <laughs> that's true. But I'm sure you wouldn't say no. But Japanese scientists have found a moon cave that is big enough to be an astronaut base. That's right. The Japanese space agency JAXA has announced that it has discovered an enormous cave. Really, it's 50 kilometers long and 100 meters wide, all underground. This discovery came from radar data from the Japanese spacecraft. The 
Japanese spacecraft Selene, which is orbiting the moon. And scientists think that this is actually a very, very long lava tube, which was formed by volcanic activity about 3.5 billion years ago. So this is where lava hardens on the surface, but it keeps flowing underneath it. So it clears out this tube. And if you wanted to find something like this, you wouldn't have to go too far from where we are right now. That's right. One of the best best examples on Earth of this kind of phenomenon is actually on Jeju-do, the Manjonggu Caves. I don't know if, you, if you've been, but I've they are... I've been to Jeju-do before, but I, I've not... Not the caves. Not the caves, yeah. They're absolutely spectacular. Um, I've, been, I've been a couple times. I've seen, I've seen the, um, the caves where um, they would hide uh, fighter planes and things like that in the past, um, but I don't know if they're the same caves or not. I, I don't believe so. These are they're not they're not that big that you could fit a fighter. Okay. Plane. Well, you could fit a fighter plane in some of them because in some of the places it does open up where the, there are these enormous cavities, uh, thirty meters high in some points, and and the tube just runs for several kilometers. So wow. if you do get a chance to go, uh, it's very very cool. Um, of course, this example on the moon is is even larger, and JAXA says that it's one of the best candidates known so far for putting a lunar base inside. Why would you want to put a lunar base so far underground, though? I mean, the, the, the moon, what conditions like on the surface? Right. So they, they are quite harsh. Obviously, the moon has no atmosphere. Uh, in addition to that, that means that the temperature conditions are very extreme. Uh, the temperature in the sun is over 100 degrees Celsius, and in the shade, it's minus 100 minus 150 degrees Celsius. Um, so putting a base underground will give you a more stable environment. Of course, it's still going to be cold, but at least you're not going to have to deal with those daily temperature changes or even those changes just when you, you know, step out of the shade. Um, another reason to put a moon base underground is that it gives you a lot of protection from first dangerous radiation in space, cosmic rays, uh, the sun's ultraviolet radiation. Which is then much stronger. That's right. From the moon. When you don't have an atmosphere to block it. Uh, it also protects you from micrometeorite impacts. So, you know, tiny pebbles or even specks of dust that are just flying through space and happen to impact the moon, uh, they could actually rip a hole in, you know, in, in a habitat wall, uh, mm. even if they're just, you know, tiny, tiny specks of dust. So staying underground is also a smart idea uh, for that reason. So um, we could picture that movie, The Martian. That's right. With Matt Damon and the challenges he faced above ground on Mars, and that would That's give right. it, that would give us a clue as to why it's better to be underground. Yes, we all, I, you know, I hope you forgive me for drawing on fiction for my science. Mark Zastro, always a pleasure to have you here in the studio, offering us real tech expertise. Great to be here, and that is our science and technology this morning with Mark Zastro.